Welcome to Campaign Chemistry, where we pick the brains of creative alchemists, business wizards, and marketing geniuses behind the world's greatest brands. I'm your host, Allison Weisbrot, editor of Campaign US, and my guest this week is John Gallegos, CEO of United Collective, a creative multicultural agency with services across advertising, digital, and PR. John fell into the multicultural marketing world, but has since been on a mission to adapt the way brands think about the discipline by teaching them to meet diverse audiences where they are, as opposed to adapting diverse audiences to the general market. It's a strategy that makes a lot of sense for companies as the U.S. shifts towards a minority white nation. A serial entrepreneur, John also owns businesses in his local Southern California community, including a Mexican-inspired craft brewery and an allergy clinic inspired by his son's story. Hey, John, how are you? Hi, Allison. I'm doing well, thanks. How are you? Doing well. Thanks for joining me on the podcast today. Thanks for the invitation. I'm excited. Yeah. So tell me a little bit about you. Um, you you own your own agency collective, but how did you get here? Wow. So without going too far back in history, um, I really stumbled into the marketing and advertising world. Uh, I was... Uh, I always share the story of a uh, some counseling and cajoling that I got from a professor uh, while I was at USC, and I was I'd always envisioned you know being a, a an athlete and a and a lover of sports that I would enter in some sort of sports marketing, uh, maybe kind of a Jerry Maguire before Jerry Maguire thing, and uh, there was an an opportunity uh, to work for an agency, an ad agency that was specializing in this booming uh, Hispanic market that was growing. And I, I, I didn't think much about advertising at the time. I had taken classes and uh, I had interned with, uh, with the firm, but I didn't really think about that as a career, much less Hispanic or tapping into something that was just really part of my essence. And uh, she uh, uh, jokingly threatened to fail me in the class and make me take it over again if I didn't take this uh, opportunity that was in front of me. And so I, uh, she said, it's, you're really good at it. I think, um, you can make a a great career out of it, but also it's this new emerging marketplace and this is really a trend and, uh, demographics are speaking to it, et cetera, et cetera. And I guess long story short, I, I took the job and, uh, I never left the industry and, you know, made it through two agencies that were, uh, ultimately or subsequently uh, acquired. And then finally I thought maybe it's t- uh, time for me to, you know, put out my own shingle and, and, and give it a go. And so I, I, I started the agency um, uh, in 2001, you know, uh, in the summer of 2001 and then nine 11 hit. And I started thinking, wow, what is, could my timing be any worse? Um, yeah. But, uh, but everything worked out knock on wood. Awesome. So what was it like launching your own agency? Um, did you face any challenges? Like what sort of support did you have along the way? Well, um, it was interesting because, you know, I think at, at, at the core of when you start something new, you're trying to fulfill an unmet need. And mm-hmm. I, I think, you know, some of what I was doing for clients and I always felt that what, what stood out about the work that I was a part of, um, throughout my career was that I always felt that 
creativity needed to be at the core of what was what we were doing, regardless of the audience we were talking to. You know, we had to be creative. We had to be smart about it. Uh, and it just so happened that I was working, helping clients reach a specific audience. That specific audience happened to be multicultural and Hispanic. Uh, but I always felt that there was a, uh, a gap in putting creativity and strategic uh, insight, uh, not just making it a, a that we were missing an audience and that we needed language to reach them, uh, but really that we needed to, to, to be at the core creative. And so I started the agency with that, a pivot to saying they're, they're, they're not mutually exclusive, doing really smart work for a targeted audience and, and at the core being creative. Um, I think the biggest challenges, like the one I mentioned at first, were some of the things that we can't control. You know, anytime you start a business, there are things that are going to be out of your control. You know, we had 9-11, it shut things down um, and for a little while there, and but it, it didn't deter us. We, we, we continued on. And the, the other thing I think that within the space, which kind of still exists, is how we see the market. And, you know, I think sometimes legacy sequencing, we like to call it, gets in the way of of new innovations and new ways of looking at things. And, and that's kind of been one of our, our challenges over, over 20 years as we've grown, 20 plus years as we've grown is that uh, sometimes the more things change, the more things stay the same, as, especially as mm. it relates to multicultural and, and, uh, and Hispanic. Mm. What do you mean by that? And, and what do you mean by legacy sequencing? I think, you know, um, the, the more thing I'll, I'll start with the more things change, the more things stay the same. I mean, the, the conversations that we're having today about DE&I and multicultural marketing and Hispanic, it's I mean, the the increased diversity in the marketplace is not something new. I, I've professionally lived through four census censuses and, mm-hmm. you know, at Every 10 years, we continue to see that the growth and the emergence of what we're calling the diverse minority segments. The, the country is just getting more diverse ethnically, uh, on, on just really on all fronts, you know, not just country of origin, not just ethnicity. Generationally, we're more diverse than we've ever been. You know, we have diversity around about gender, uh, uh, lifestyle, you know, there's just so much going on and technology is really accelerating that. And I think that we're having a lot of the same conversations and we're not quite seeing the, the progress. And I think some of that has to do with what we call legacy sequencing, which is we're, we're used to doing things a certain way, especially in our industry. You know, the, the notion of, of a lead agency and a general quote unquote marketplace um, coming up with the idea and the thinking and then disseminating it. I think um, multicultural agencies, and if you look at the last decade, decade plus, digital agencies, you know, can you can you take this idea and make it digital? Can you take this uh-huh. idea and PR it? Can you take this idea and make it multicultural? And and really the, the marketplace has evolved past that. And, and I think you see that you see that in the holding companies, even, you know, the the lead name on the agency marquee is different. It's AKQ right. and Gray, right? It's VML1R. Mm-hmm. Um, 
So yeah, no, I think to your point, um, this this industry has for very has struggled for a very long time to get out of this like um, siloed mindset and. Yes multicultural has always just been a silo, right? It's always been something you tack on to the side. And in a country that's very, very quickly becoming minority and majority, that's not going to work anymore. So I guess my question for you is how has the markets, you came into this market 20 years ago with vision of like, we're going to put creative first for this audience. Like how did the market receive that? Um, were you often still seen as like, oh, the multicultural shop we call when we need a Hispanic plan? Or how did you sort of like build up your um, your rep- repertoire to just say, no, we are a creative agency. We just happen to focus on this audience. Yeah. Yeah. That's your, your that, that's exactly what happened. And I think we created a, a new space, which, you know, can be exciting you know, on, on one hand, but sometimes when you create a, a new space or you go to a blue ocean, it's really hard. Which, which box do you fit in? You know, are you, are, again, are you my general agency or are you my multicultural agency? And we really kind of didn't fit into either of those definitions in the traditional sense. We, we, right. we, we always felt that uh, cultural attunement, you know, and creativity together were really powerful because we just saw the marketplace changing and it was changing faster in certain markets than in others. Um, but again, it's, it's not unlike, and, and I think it's, it's interesting because we, we struggle in the, this industry, both advertising and really in the country, we're struggling with the emerging population and the emerging segment or portion of the population, not being like the host population. And, mm-hmm. and, and clients tend not to, to struggle with that when they think globally. They're, they mm. go to new emerging markets, but the market is the market. You're going to Brazil. You're going to Latin America. You're going to Asia. And you're bringing in new customers. In, in the case of the U.S., you're dealing with a marketplace that is transforming. And, and so, you know, what, what we've needed to do and, and where we're going now is really – uh, challenging again some of the legacy mindset even even minority majority I understand the root of the the term and what it means but it almost sat it continues to hold this this like albatross over a segment that is really the majority population like for example in California right. in Los Angeles right by calling them a minority majority I understand in the if we're talking about in the sense of the US okay. It is a minority population in the U.S., a, a segment of the population. But within California, to call it a minority majority or within L.A., to call it a minority majority is like to say, well, why aren't they just the majority population? Yeah, it doesn't make, even make sense. It's an oxymoron. Right, like, exactly. Wow. exactly. And, <laughs> and, and, and that, little, that little thing you hang on, it just almost minimizes what you do. And it plays into the legacy sequencing of saying, oh, okay, well, but you're still the minority. Right, right. Yeah. That's still your label. Yes, that's still the label. And so we've, we've really kind of tried to turn that on its head. And, and uh, when there's uh, uh, a, a quote that we go by here, when you change the way you look at things, the things you look at change. Um, Wayne Dyer's quote, and uh, it it's changing that mindset and and really tying it back to I, I think where the market needs to shift its conversation and and where we've been 
you know, challenging or introducing or educating clients to is to tie it back to their goals, their business goals. Mm. So, and, and the common denominator that I see in the C-suites across the U.S. or across the companies that we work with and globally is growth. That, that's yeah. the common denominator. They, they need growth. And so, sure. so instead of looking at, you know, what we have in the U.S. from a demographic standpoint is a declining volume majority. The right. let's call it general population, the non-ethnic white general population is a declining volume majority. They are still the volume majority, but they're declining. And when you look at the ethnic segments like like Hispanic, they are a volume minority, but they are a growth majority. Right. They represent yeah. the growth. And so if we were to kind of suspend that for a second and think about it in terms of a category or a product or a service, you know, it's not unlike saying that in the telephony category, landline is a declining volume majority, right? And mobile mm-hmm. is the growth majority. It's, it's a, it was a volume minority and it is now, it, be, it was a growth majority though and they invested in it since back to the 90s, right? If you look at today, you know, uh, traditional cable subscription or subscribers are a declining volume majority and streamers are a growth majority. Right. You know? and, and when they see it that way, they it it it, uh, it informs their investment strategies. Exactly. They, they protect the core and invest in the growth. So how are you, um, how are your clients reacting to these changes in the U.S. population? Do you feel like they are sort of starting to think about this in a different way um, or are a lot of them still stuck with legacy thinking? Um, I think, well, the clients that we have, I think, are coming to us because we're, we're pretty clear about how we see the market and it's it can be challenging, you know, and so it's it's challenging on on two fronts. One, it's from a marketing standpoint, it's how do you break away from zero, you know, some game thinking where my, my marketing budget is flat. I've got to do more things to more diverse audiences in a more fragmented and diverse media landscape. And how am I going to spend the money? How am I going to invest? So, you know, that's the first hurdle is getting that and figuring out ways to, to, to get clients to feel comfortable around this, how do we integrate what we do into the overall plan? And you have to, you have to ultimately tie it to their growth goals. It, businesses as a whole, and I think this is probably one of the things as an entrepreneur and as an owner, you know, I just happen to be an, an owner and an entrepreneur of a marketing communications company, but I, I think I gravitate a lot to the rest of the C-suite where the COO and the CEO are, and I see the operational challenges that they're going to run into. Well, how do I operationalize this? How, how do I integrate what is a customer that does not look like my core customer, but they're growing and may not assimilate 
how do I integrate that across my my organization or my enterprise? And and so those are the those are the challenges that I see. The clients that we're working with are are embracing it, and we we typically we look for what we call courageous clients. That that's all agency service clients, and and the real differentiator of one agency to another is the client roster because that's who we do work for. And and I've always held held that really uh, close here at the agency of saying we want courageous clients and courageous mm-hmm. clients are willing to challenge conventional thinking. They value creativity with the emphasis on value it. They value it. They know they need to invest in it. Um, they're, they're genuinely curious, which means they understand that there's things changing and they want to know how to do it. Um, they trust and they're trustworthy. So, you know, that that's the formula we look for. We've got a great client roster. And I would tell you that one of the clients that really has has bought into that on a on a very advanced level is our California Milk Processor Board the got milk, the original got milk account uh, and brand here in California because they saw that the marketplace was changing. And for them to take an iconic campaign and legendary and, and, and trust us, we were always doing the, the multicultural work, the, the Hispanic work. And when they needed to make a decision on one agency that they entrusted us to lead their brand into the future kind of speaks to them understanding that it's not an either or. It's how can we do this for a completely, you know, evolving marketplace? A hundred percent. And I think that uh, more and more brands are going to realize I can't have multicultural sitting over here in a bucket. Like it yeah. is the majority of my audience. Um, so how has that changed your offering over time? I know you started with Gallegos United, which is the creative agency, but you offer PR. You now have United X, which is a new mm-hmm. media offering, I believe. Talk a little bit about um, how you've evolved your offer to meet marketplace needs. Yeah, and I think that's where you know we really had to lean into our own vision of cultural attunement because cultural attunement, you know, how consumers uh, consume media, how they interact with brands, is, and how they interact with people, and how they use technology is a really big part of culture, right? So. So we needed the agency uh, itself needed to evolve and say, well, so we have this demographic evolution that we're making where we want to be the most culturally attuned and creatively driven agency. And if you, you that's where Gallegos United is evolving into. But we also know that there are different ways beyond advertising and they shouldn't be sequenced through Gallegos. So I didn't want to create the same legacy sequencing that I was kind of fighting against. Mm-hmm. And so we acquired, you know, Rocks, which was formerly RLPR, Rocks United, and Canvas Digital and it's Canvas United. And, and those are two entities that live within the collective and do digital solutions for Canvas and do PR experiential and activation with Rocks. Mm-hmm. And so what it what it what it is 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 the collective itself 
um, unlike a traditional hold co, it's really more of a thread. And, and the, the, the spine that runs through the organizations is, you know, cultural attunement in service to growth, right? Create creative and cultural attunement in service to growth. And so they, they're doors for clients to walk in. If a client wants to start a relationship on an experiential front, on an activation front, they're probably going to start the relationship with, uh, with rocks. If they want to start with digital or social led, they're probably going to start with canvas and, Within the collective, we've got a great toolbox. We can integrate, we can scale, but the client really can can come in, get a single source of contact. It's one P and L because we're independent, and they can come in and say, "This is the bespoke uh, agency model that I want constructed." It gives mm-hmm. us quite a bit of flexibility. And in this past year, we just saw with the, you know, I think there's there's more integration in media and, and we need to have it because you have so many media choices and evergreen work is really social work now. It's not evergreen broadcast work, right? People are engaging first socially with brands and that puts the, the onus on, well, how do media and creative work together? And we had to get them closer and closer together. And so, you know, we uh, with cross media, we uh, in a collaboration which is another, you know, independent and minority owned agency out there that's doing media is we said, well, what if we brought the sensibility and the capability together, the capability of just best in class media with the sensibility of understanding the audience and creatively engaging with them. And, and mm-hmm. that's how United X was formed. Awesome. So is it like a joint venture? It is. Yeah. And, um, I mean, it's inter- it stood out to me because this past year in the upfronts, um, there's been a big conversation around minority investing in minority owned media. And it's a conversation that I personally haven't seen in the industry before. Um, I'm curious what you make of that. Um, yeah, it's I think it is a it, it's definitely a, a, a topic that needs to be addressed and and it's a it's definitely a step in the right direction but i really don't think it's enough and and you're going to run into obstacles and hurdles of are we talking about investing through minority-owned companies or are we talking about investing in minority-owned media because there's not going to be enough minority-owned media to give you the scale and there's probably not going to be enough minority owned media that has the measurement and metric tools and all of that to satisfy. And so there's a, there's a bit of, of caution that I would throw out there because we're, we're going to then ask clients to take a leap of faith and not put the same rigor that they have have when they look at their quote unquote general buys. And and then that kind of goes back to what you were alluding to earlier, which is then this becomes kind of a bolt on. We we have to build and we have to we have to value the multicultural audiences or the ethnic audiences out there as business contributors. And and I think there, there's an area that hasn't really been talked about as we get into, you know, minority media pledges and and DE and I, and that is how does data play into that, and how does measurement play into that, 
because you know there's there's so much talk around privacy and 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 how and what we can measure and, and audiences and opting in and and profiling in and of itself is just just has so much negative connotation with it but if we can't measure those audiences we're we're going to be unable to prove the the monetary contribution that they have to growth. I mean, unless the client has a proprietary, um, you know, sales measurement tool and some of the clients do like our Comcast client, I mean, they, they have set top box, right. Or they have, you know, they go through the house. So they're able to determine whether it's a Hispanic customer or not Hispanic customer, you know, a lot easier than maybe a CPG that has to go through um, sales, you know, sales channels. Right. Mm-hmm. So, but I think until you resolve that, you're going to run into, well, how much do you invest and how much do you spend in it? Right. No, it's true. And I think a lot of them are trying to solve the supply issue in terms of investing in new uh, media companies and creators, but it is going to be difficult. Like clients are going to demand the same level of measurement, scale, and volume. Um, so I'd be curious. And, and at the end of the day, agencies can't really force their clients to spend money. So that's right. And so you, you have to make a business case. I mean, at the, at the core of DE and I, it is a, it is a business imperative. It is how we are going to grow. And, and, and really, if you think of just the word growth, it, it will lead to not just, you know, commercial business growth for a client. Clients will grow. I mean, we've done a lot of, of models for different clients where if they don't win with Hispanic consumers, they have to steal share at probably three to five times the rate they've stolen share before. Mm. I mean, we, and if and you see the industry talking about it, ANA talks about it, they're challenged to organically grow their business without acquisition of new companies or just radical innovation, they are struggling to grow organically. And that boils down to, I don't know that they're, they're getting the growth that they should get from the quote unquote niche audiences. Yeah, no, it's a good point. Um, I guess, so you brought up DE&I. Um, what, what are you doing? Inter- like, what do you, first, what are you doing internally? Um, obviously you're a, diverse <laughs> business owner, you have yeah. a diverse multicultural agency, but what, what are you, um, as you watch other agencies enter yeah. the space, what do you make of their attempts and efforts? Yeah, it's interesting. Cause I, I think our DE and I, um, efforts started probably, well, obvious or we're very organically diverse, um, as an agency and because of the audiences that we've helped clients service. But a lot of our DE&I is actually reverse in terms of recruiting and bringing um, what we would call general marketplace uh, leaders and executives into this, what we call the growth majority segment. So, you know, I, I like to tease that I lure uh, executives from the general agencies by telling them that they could come work in the fastest growing emerging segment with, you know, culture and creativity at its core, and they don't have to use their passport, you know? And so mm-hmm. it's, it's interesting how, how DE&I is, is seen. And so from our perspective, it's, it's kind of a different, different answer, different angle. But what I see going on in the industry is, again, it's, it's bolted on. And for decades, the body rejects the organ. 
is probably the best way to to explain it. You you are recruiting talent into in your agency and into the industry without you're not really committed to the audience that they represent. Mm-hmm. You know, and so what ends up happening is you your inclusion is telling them, well, come be part of our journey. And you're not allowing them to come in and inform your journey. Mm. And that's really just not inspiring or exciting, right? You think about it. So basically, you're generalizing them. Yeah. And, and, and I think that's not where the talent wants to go. And the talent doesn't see themselves. And, and another thing I think when you see it is in our industry, when we look at our clients, if if, if a client is a, a multinational, a global company, you probably have a CEO that has worked abroad, has worked in an emerging market, mm-hmm. as well as their host development nation. If they're the head of a U.S. corporation, that U.S.-based global company, they've probably worked abroad. Somewhere in their career, they've picked up the skills of of working in an emerging market that isn't their host, and then they come back and they can actually lead a global company. They can they understand how to play into, you know, developed nations versus emerging nations, how to deal with Western Europe versus Eastern Europe, LATAM versus North America and the US, etc. I don't see that in our industry. I don't see even at the leadership level, people who leaders who have actually worked in the emerging space mm-hmm. to understand it and inform it and then say, ah, this is the kind of talent I need. And if you think about it, just beyond I me, mean, if you were to apply that to the digital space, it's the same thing, right? It, it goes back to what we talked about earlier. Why is VML in front of YNR? Why is AKQA in front of Gray? Why is Wonderman in front of Thompson, right? Because the body continues to reject the organ in, in its current legacy modeling. Yeah, no, it's a really good point. Um, do you think that the distinction of a multicultural agency is necessary anymore? Um, it probably is still necessary because there's a lot of clients who are still kind of dipping their toe in the water and need to understand it. And I think if you don't have a a agency that, it, again, it really depends on how it's being defined. If it's not defined as multicultural, it will get generalized and it won't get the attention. Mm-hmm. But I mean, really what we're talking about is not, it's not multicultural marketing. It's marketing to a multicultural America. Yeah. And I think when you flip that, again, change the way you look at things, all of a sudden, then the onus really should be on everybody to understand marketing to a multicultural U.S. and an increasingly diverse U.S. Yeah, 100%. And I think that comparing it to digital is is a really interesting, um, like, it's interesting to view the paradigm shift in that way. Yeah, Um, yeah, it's, it's, it, it, there, there are a lot of parallels there. And, and I think, um, you know, understanding who the core audience and where that audience is driving that growth and where they're driving the shifts in media, in uh, entertainment, in food, you know, just there's all the sectors that you see so much influence. And, mm-hmm. and you know, I think one of the one of the fastest growing in the last census uh, count uh, audience segment is uh, mixed households. 
multiracial mm-hmm. households. Mm-hmm. So, you know, what, 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 what happens? Or how do you define an audience if you have, let's say, an African-American and an Asian Mary? And, you know, well, how would you define their household? If you exactly. somebody who's yeah. non-ethnic marrying a Hispanic, how would you define that household? I mean, so again, I think it's, it's you know, we borrowing from, from JFK's, you know, ask uh, not what your country can do for you, ask what you can do for your country, is maybe we shouldn't be asking how acculturated is the audience, and really we should be asking ourselves, well, how acculturated is my brand? Mm-hmm. How, how attuned am I to the audience? Because the audience is going, and with technology, they can shift in and out of culture and cultural cues. They can stay connected globally. They can stay connected to their uh, generational, you know, their their parents' um, household environment and their non, you know, ethnic environment. And it's just there's so much fluidity there. And and so it's hard. It's a they're moving target, m- much like they're moving target in general, right? And so mm-hmm. the more you understand that and the more you allow that to inform your thinking, the more attuned the work is going to naturally become. Right. Um, I want to I want to switch gears a little bit and yeah. ask you about um, the, speaking to the Hispanic audience. And specifically, I read a lot about, you know, uh, vaccine hesitancy among the Hispanic population. Mm-hmm. And I see a lot of campaigns and public service announcements targeting that audience as well as the African-American audience. What are you um as a Hispanic person and as someone who runs a multicultural agency, what do you sort of make of like breaking through that hesitancy? Um, is the industry doing that the right way? Is it, is it possible to do that? Like what's unpacked for me a little bit? What's what you see going on there and how you're approaching it? Yeah. It's, it's interesting. Cause we had a, we were honored to work with the California department of public health last year on, on COVID. And we did a little, we did uh, an effort and we got into market quickly on educating around COVID and COVID protocols. And then we got into and did a little bit of vaccine work. And I think it, it really does fall into the same kind of legacy thinking. You have dollars and you come up with an idea of how to communicate to an audience that is already over communicated to. And you try to apply that thinking to an audience that is probably under communicated to, you know, Hispanic, African-American, where they're probably not at the same place. And so we we also we, we kind of call it as you're starting the conversation mid sentence. Mm-hmm. You 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 didn't take into consideration. Well, what's their household dynamic look like? What are, what are the things that they're being challenged with? And when it comes to like vaccines. You know, are they getting the same information in a timely basis in a way that is understandable and digestible to their circumstance and their situation? And I think when you have, I mean, they they make up a disproportionate amount of frontline workers, right? And we're not mm-hmm. talking about just frontline um healthcare and, you know, the public sector of, of police and firefighters, et cetera. You're, you're talking about frontline workers of, well, who is working in the kitchens at the places that you're ordering from, right? Mm-hmm. Who, who is working in the, in the uh, manufacturing and in the uh, food 
industry, the 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 poultry plants, the meat plants, etc. You know, it's disproportionately ethnic. So they're out there, and it, you know, you you have to understand both their maybe they have not the clearest understanding or they haven't been informed about it when it comes to medicine and the medical side of it, the science side of it, but there's also an economic impact of it. You know, can I, can I take the vaccine if I get sick? Am I going to have to miss work? Can I afford to miss work? You know, there's, there's many layers to, to who and, and how they're reacting. And so you have to have that conversation with them in an authentic way and, cover the different aspects of it. And, and oftentimes what it does is it, is it pushes us to have to do more with that audience. And again, when we start talking about, well, if they're seen as still a minority segment, they're probably going to have to, you're adapting a general message to them versus saying, no, what's the custom message that they need mm-hmm. based on their circumstance. You know, and the majority of them are are they start with mobile, mm-hmm. you know, and so are you building all of the communication in mobile and social and, and how are you getting it to them and who are the influencers? And that, that's where we 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 were successful with the work is that we said, well, who's going to influence the audience the most to do what we want them to do? And and what did the, what was the campaign that you guys came up with, and, and how effective was um, it? it? It was it was moms. You know, we we did some work around that. It was mom that was going to be the one because when there was science and politics and everybody and doctors and everybody kind of creating this confusion, we said at the end of it, it's it's who has your best interest at heart all the time, mm-hmm. mom. And so, you know, one of the, the, the great lines in the brief that we had is, I don't want to see you this holiday, said no mom ever, you know? I mean, that's, that's not something a mom, especially a Latina mom, would ever want to do. Yeah. So, but we said, and we, um, we went out and, and shot real moms who believed that and said, let's, Let's suspend this holiday so we can have this holiday celebration so we can have a lot more in the future. And, you know, we we did this whole play on, on writing on the masks at, at the time and with the messaging. And it was it really was like, wow. I mean, would your mom ever tell you that? And it's like, well, she would if she knew it was the best. It was in, in your best interest. Right. And again, so it was just a completely different take on an, on who who was the influencer. Yeah. And I think to your point, it does start with knowing the audience and where they're at um, in the conversation and meeting them, meeting them where they are. And I know Mm -hmm. you, you, in addition to Gallegos, I mean, in uh, United Collective, you own some local businesses, correct? In in California. So you have a brewery, you have an allergy clinic. Talk about how being involved in the community helps you uh, do work for your clients. Yeah, I think... um... It's interesting that being, I think, a serial entrepreneur is how I've been, you know, uh, tagged here is that I, I just tend to gravitate toward areas where I'm like, well, wow, is there is there an, an unmet need there? Is how, how could we bring creative thinking to that and how can a different view help that out? And, you know, it started with, you know, breaking out and starting a, a production company. You know, um, Oakleaf Productions is a production and a media own media property company. 
and you know, kind of going back to something that you mentioned earlier about spending in minority-owned media. Well, if there's not enough minority-owned media and media content, maybe we should be producing it ourselves. So I have a uh, I started a production company that does you know it does production in the traditional broadcast production and post production and it does um, you know end to end, but it also has a it started its own media platforms so. What, what what we saw was that in the in the entertainment social landscape, there's the pop sugars of the world, you know, the refinery 29s, and then there's the traditional more Telemundo, Univision, you know. So a bicultural consumer is forced to either go to a very traditional media landscape for – entertainment content, or they have to navigate a very large general platform and find bicultural entertainment in it. And so we said, well, they don't, what they don't have is a space for themselves. And so we created Espacio, which is space, you know, in Spanish. And it's a, it's a, I guess it, you would call it a, it's like a pop sugar when pop sugar first launched mm-hmm. by culturals. And it's doing extremely well because the content is very authentic. It's it's taking that bicultural entertainer or bicultural entertainment and serving it up to biculturals the way they would want to consume it. So that was kind of a and that's where that production entity is going. And it and you know I we took on a client a few years back um, that was a craft brewery here in Southern California that wanted to launch a Mexican inspired brewery, craft brewery. And so, you know, because they were, they were, it was a startup venture, you know, budgets were going to be challenged. And again, being able to be independent and being an entrepreneur, I said, we'd love to work on that project. It's, it, it's absolutely uh, something that could, that could blow up and and have a lot of success and we could have a lot of fun doing it. So we took an equity stake Mm. and, you know, over the course of a year or two, um, we got more committed. They got a little less committed, the original investors. And so I took controlling interest in it. So it is a, a brand it's called South Norte and we have beers, craft beers, but also traditional lager like beers that are just crafted that have the the flavors of Mexico. And so again, it's playing in that space of how does the flavors of Mexico come to life. How are they crafted for this market? Mm-hmm. Doing doing really well. We've got a new innovation coming out um, later this year that plays outside of beer, but it still plays in the uh, alcoholic beverage, um, and it's not seltzer. So um, <laughs> it's interesting that you know it's it's just so ripe to say, wow, how could you play the flavors of Mexico? into this category and service, not just Hispanics or Mexicans, but service the general population that is, you know, no pun intended here, thirsty for all (laughs) great cultural experiences, right? Whether it's in their food or their beverage. Mm -hmm. So um, it's just, it's, it's awesome. And it's, it's given us an opportunity, I think here to say, wow. So I'm I'm actually wearing the client hat. Mm Mm-hmm. And, and living out how to market it and everything that is what we normally do for clients. Now I'm getting to actually wear the, the, the client hat and 
have the different agencies that we have help support it and get it to grow. And, you know, so that that's that's fun and exciting. And, you know, you mentioned the allergy clinic. That's something that's pretty close to home for, for my wife and I. Um, um, we our youngest son um, has had severe food allergies when he was a child. Mm-hmm. And and this was he's 16 now. So, you know, 16 years ago, 15 years ago, um, food allergy was was still pretty nascent and you know, gluten and all the kinds of food intolerances um, was very, very niche and, and very hard to navigate around. And and my wife took it upon herself to say, well, you know, we're, we're a foodie family. And, you know, the two older siblings, my, my older son and older daughter are, you know, we, we all love to eat. And she, my wife is, is Italian and, and, you know, I'm Mexican. And so our palates and it was, it was awesome. And it was, we were like, well, wow, how is Matthew going to navigate this in our household? And so, you know, she went out and basically figured out ways to do all of the alternative cooking, right? How do we bring him into the meal experience? Because again, food can be more than just a uh, nourishment, you know, nutrition and supplement. It's really, it can be a very social and, and we're very social mm-hmm. about food. And so, you know, I mean, I don't think kids want to fit in when they're little. And the last thing they want to do is say, well, I'm going to the party and I can't, you know, make sure they don't have peanut butter and jelly sandwiches or yeah. I can't have pizza or I can't do this. You know, I can't have ice cream because I'm, I'm allergic to dairy or and it just it, it isolates them. And so we, we met with uh, with a phenomenal doctor, um, Dr. Randawa. And and said and he was understanding all of this and a lot of the what he calls the orphan diseases out there, and we basically set out on a goal to to cure it. To say, well, kids, while they're developing, there are ways to get them through all of their allergies, all of their food allergies, and get them to be able to not just have a peanut, but if you have a peanut allergy, to be able to have peanut butter and jelly sandwich. And it's it's just this phenomenal. I would never do it justice, but this phenomenal approach that has science and really holistic, um, so you know, approach to it. And you know, so my my wife and I uh, funded it, and it has grown to be. It's the Southern California uh, Southern California Food and Allergy Institute. And you know, the unfortunate side of it, I would say, is that we've got a really long waiting list that doesn't mm-hmm. only deal it's kids globally we've got kids and families coming in from europe and from the east coast and you know because when you're in that situation it's it's just dire it's like you it really does restrict what you can do you kid mm-hmm. with an allergy well can you travel and how do you well, travel right and when you're when you're abroad and and so we found a lot of you know my, my wife when we were traveling throughout europe and we were in, in italy she basically created index cards with his allergies on one side in english and on the other side in italian we yeah. just made it to places and it's like oh okay well he can have this he can't have this and we can come we can accommodate this and so we're just thinking wow there's there are a lot of simple ways to solve it so we've kind of taken that holistic approach with the allergy clinic and said you know how do we help parent the, the child as a patient how do we help them get through it but secondly how do we help parents understand that they're not alone and mm-hmm. really there is a recourse for them both while their child is in the you know, early stages of the, of the program 
to how they can how we can get them and migrate them out. And and it's it's just great to see kids being able to do that. And parents say, oh my God, this is this is a godsend. This is a lifesaver. Yeah, it's amazing. Um, that that's awesome, and it's so cool to see you know how many different businesses you have going on outside of advertising. And I feel like it just does sort of help. Being involved in the community can only help make a more well-rounded uh, agency. Yeah. Yeah, well, it, it, it gets you, I think at the core of it, what it does is it gets you to be, you know, I, I guess I've never stopped being curious. Yeah. And, and, and I think that that's the most inviting thing to a client relationship. If you think of advertising being my core business is it's, at the core, it's curiosity, right? A client is coming to you because they need you to help them solve something in the communication space. And you have to be curious about, A, well, why are they struggling or how can we help them? You know, everything starts with a really good question. Yeah. And then you can go from there. And so when you apply that entrepreneurially across things, it's it's pretty pretty exciting and, and, and very rewarding. Awesome. Well, unfortunately, we're out of time, but thank you so much for... Um for joining me today on the podcast. I feel like I really learned a lot just chatting with you. So oh, thank thanks, you. Awesome. I really appreciate the, the opportunity to share and um, again, the opportunity uh, to be on the podcast. That's all the time we have this week. Thanks for tuning in to Campaign Chemistry and we'll see you next time.